Welcome to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice and a project of Surge Faith. My name is Will Green, and I'm the contributor for this episode as we prepare for Sunday, June 21st, 2020. On this podcast, we engage the weekly scripture readings from the Common Lectionary through an anti-racist lens. This is the place where we ask questions like, what does it mean to believe in so-called good news when racism and white supremacy have influenced Christianity so much? How should we read the Bible, given the realities of anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, anti-trans violence, Islamophobia, ableism, and other forms of oppression that are all around us and also deeply within us? What's it mean to be Christian in the age of Trump? How do we read the Bible at all? Or why should we? And what does scripture have to do with the world we actually want to live in? The world we're trying to create? If these are questions you'd like to explore, then this is a podcast for you. Welcome. This is a space of learning, inspiration, and action for people who are committed to showing up for racial justice. Because this podcast is created by Surge, the primary intended audience for the word is resistance is white people in the United States. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to dismantle white supremacy and follow the leadership of people of color. Of course, we welcome feedback from and accountability to people of color. As I said before, my name is Will Green. To tell you a little bit about myself, I'm a white, gay, male, Protestant clergy person who lives on Wabanaki land in what is now called the state of Maine. I've been contributing to The Word is Resistance for over three years. It's been a really cool experience for me. The reason I was drawn to being a part of this podcast, and continue to be, is because I'm a prison abolitionist. What do I mean by that? When I say I'm a prison abolitionist, I mean that I believe in a world where people don't try to solve problems through violent punishment. I don't think we should keep people in cages. I don't think prisons keep us safe. I think there are better ways to promote safety, well-being, and accountability than policing and the court system and the ongoing increasing reliance on incarceration in response to seemingly everything. I also think that one of the primary reasons we keep promoting punishment and police and prisons as the only way to structure our society is because of racism. This whole system is racist. It's designed to protect whiteness. It's designed to do harm to, and ultimately kill, people who won't go along with white supremacy. But I believe in a world without prisons and without police. And even more important than believing in a world without those things, I believe in a world with community-based systems of sharing, learning, and healing. I'm not trying to be doctrinaire when I use the words I believe as if I'm conforming to some preconceived definition or litmus test. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow with others on this journey with me. This is some of what I mean by anti-racism. For several years now, uh, we've been able to study, work on, and test ourselves against the platform created by the Movement for Black Lives, or M4BL. I'll talk more about the Movement for Black Lives toward the end of this episode. Also, in this edition of The Word is Resistance, I'm going to share how abolitionist thought influences the way I read a story from the 21st chapter of the book of Genesis. 
So my politics, the movement for black lives, and scripture all come together. That's what we do on this podcast. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Reverend Dr. Vincent Harding called We Are Building Up a New World. The group singing is called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for choir practice to bring music back into direct action in other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're particularly thankful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Now let's get to the story. First, a quick summary. This is a story about two young kids who grow up playing together. Kids should have the right to play and to grow up. But although they're both kids, they're not offered the same futures. One kid is the heir of the entire household. The other kid is born enslaved, and his mother is enslaved too. But the mother of the heir is enraged, not enslaved, but enraged, and feels threatened by the enslaved. So she convinces her husband, who's also the father of the enslaved kid, to banish the enslaved mother and son and send them off on their own into the wilderness. And he does just that. As the enslaved mother and son are banished to die, God shows up and takes care of them. That's a quick summary by way of introduction. There are Many other important details you could highlight, and some will jump out at you as I read the story. Just to remind you of what you probably already know, the characters' names. The father of these kids is Abraham. Sarah is his free wife. Hagar is the enslaved mother, and her enslaved son is Ishmael. And the heir is named Isaac. So, here's the New Revised Standard Version of Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that the child was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, 
And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. There we have it. That's where the reading ends. So, obviously, I think, it's really hard for white people to read this story and not think about anti-black racism and the legacy of slavery in the United States. I mean, this is a story about a socially dominant family that owns other people who they are both afraid of and jealous of at the same time. In an attempt to satisfy their own jealousy and fear, the socially dominant family further punishes the enslaved people by shunning them and subjecting them to death. And even though someone in the socially dominant group thinks it's wrong, nothing is done to stop the cruelty. Abraham's reluctance and unsettled conscience do nothing to help anyone. In fact, when Abraham is unsettled about what's happening, God is written into the story to soothe Abraham's conscience. God is imagined as showing up at just the right time to justify and bless the harm that the dominant group is doing. Remember when God says, Don't worry, Abraham, you're not the bad guy here. Don't feel bad about what you're going to do. But rather than always centering the wealthy, jealous, oppressive people, the story shifts focus and explores the strength, the pain, the faith, and the future of the people who had been enslaved. Despite the cruelty and harm done by the socially dominant group, God does not abandon the people who are subjected to harm. God provides for them, cares for them, and forms a special relationship and an alternative reality with them that's outside the awareness of the socially dominant group. Are you following my attempt to summarize the story in this way? I think that telling the story this way makes it pretty easy to think about anti-blackness and white supremacy. But of course, instead of thinking about anti-blackness and white supremacy when we read the story, which I'm saying is kind of obvious, white people and the white church normally just choose to skip over this story entirely and not think about it at all. What a shocker! Why do you think this story is normally not read in white churches? I think it's obviously because this story makes us think about things that are distasteful and upsetting. Slavery, oppression, cruelty of people who steal and rape and abuse but still want to be considered the heroes of the story. It's too hard to think about these things, we say. Besides, when would we ever apply it to real life? So rather than going there, we just flash moral outrage at this story. It's a bad story, we say. Rather than thinking with it, we distance ourselves from it and don't deal with it at all. Just suppress it. And if forced to confront it, learn to say, it's bad. Suppress the story, deny the dialogue, try not to think about it, and if forced to engage, just be ready to call up some moral outrage and denounce the whole thing by saying it's bad. Then move on. Sounds like a standard recipe for handling racism from your typical cookbook of white church favorites. 
Suppress the story, deny the dialogue, try not to think about it, and if forced to engage, just be ready to call up some moral outrage and denounce the whole thing by saying it's bad, then move on. That's the recipe. But it's not very satisfying. So let's pursue a few observations about this story as I've told it. The first question I'd like to ask is, what's wrong with Sarah and why is she so afraid? Why is she so bothered by Isaac and Ishmael playing together? Does she think that Ishmael is a threat to Isaac? Does she think Ishmael is going to hurt Isaac or replace him? Does she think Ishmael is better than Isaac? Is she racked by guilt because of the fundamental unfairness she has perpetuated? And is she worried someone is going to want to get back at her? Does she think Isaac isn't as good as Ishmael? And why can't Sarah just mind her own business and leave Ishmael and Hagar alone? Just what is the problem? Is she just uncomfortable and not interested in asking why? These are all good questions for white people to ask ourselves. Seriously. Especially when we look at the horrible manifestations of racism that we perpetuate. What are we so afraid of? Are we afraid that we white people will get treated the way we've treated black people? You know, like Jesus said would happen? Or do we think everything is a competition and the only way to get ahead is to take from others, like capitalism preaches? Are we jealous of black people? Maybe Sarah's abuse of Hagar and Ishmael has a lot to teach us about our own behavior, if we'd be willing to go there. Furthermore, if we are horrified by Sarah's behavior, let's also ask ourselves, what are alternatives to her behavior that we would like to see? If you hate this story, then what new story are you interested in telling in its place? That's always a legitimate rhetorical move when interpreting biblical stories. The Bible itself does this all the time. A story gets told one way, and then the pieces get moved around and it's told a different way and becomes a new story. For example, I don't know if you know this story, and this might be too much to get into, but the story in 1 Samuel 19 of Michal helping David escape from her father, it's a retelling of the story from Genesis 31, where Rachel helps Jacob escape from Rachel's uncle. Stories can change. We can play with them and be creative. I remember a parishioner saying to me once, it's not that I hate the Bible, it's just that I'm interested in creating some new stories. I think that's just as important as learning the old stories. She's right! In fact, I think the Bible's a resource for creating new stories. It sucks that the church acts like everything worth knowing and believing is in the Bible. It's not true! I think when we open up the Bible, we should also open up ourselves and try to learn what new stories we're going to create together. For me, the Bible's not about what happened in the past. It's about what could be possible for the future. You, you might have heard me say that on the Word is Resistance before. Imagining new stories to tell is also an important part of adopting an abolitionist perspective. If you're going to abolish something, you need to create something new to put in its place. So if we're going to abolish prisons, we need new things to put in their place. Want to abolish prisons? Great! What will we put in their place to address harm and to help people heal and to transform a society of so-called law and order 
into a society of peace and justice? These are questions we should all be asking. This relates to the movement to defund the police. Think of that tired talking point that people always drag out anytime we talk about taking care of people. Whenever we talk about free education or healthcare or housing, someone always says, how are you going to pay for it? We're going to pay for it by defunding the police. And we're going to replace police and prisons with systems and practices and resources that save lives. We have all the resources we need to create new stories together. So don't just abolish Sarah from your memory uh, the way she wanted to try to abolish Hagar by casting her out. Make up a new story. That's a wide open invitation I feel when I read Genesis 21 and that I'm feeling this moment in our collective freedom movement. How do we want the story to go? Okay, let's pause there and pick up another thread. As you hear me telling this story, realize that within the story itself, just like you listen to me tell the story, within the story itself, God is listening to. God listens to our stories. Here's what I mean specifically. The second time God shows up in this story, God intervenes in this story. When God shows up in the wilderness with Hagar and Ishmael, God has been listening to the story, just like you. And God pays special attention to the woman who's weeping and to the voice of her child. It can make us wonder if we listen to the experiences and the needs of the people who are in need the most. God does. Even though Abraham and Sarah have learned to tune out the voices of the people they are subjecting to death, God listens. We should too. White people, what are we hearing? And what are we learning? I remind you that God heard George Floyd. God heard Brianna Taylor. God heard Tony McDade and Rayshard Brooks. Not just when they were killed, but throughout their lives. God listens. Of course, like Abraham and Sarah, and I should say like Abraham in this story, white people tend to only pay attention when we hear God saying, or when we think we hear God saying, eh, don't worry about it, it's not your fault, nothing you can do about it. The way God is represented as talking in this story, which I think is uh, bullshit. Of course, when we listen, we hear a lot more than just weeping. We hear wisdom. We can hear ideas, policy proposals, solutions, strategies. When we listen, we hear courage. Again, in the last part of this episode, I'll come back to this when I talk about actions we can take. As white people, it's really important that we listen to each other also. White people are so messed up by white supremacy. And I'm amazed about how people are starting to talk about it lately in a new way. For me, this is the first time in my life, I mean the last few weeks, I'm talking about June of 2020, this is the first time in my life, I have white friends literally stopping me on the sidewalk as I walk down the street because they want to talk about racism and white supremacy. This has never happened to me before. It's great. White people are talking. 
there's something going on. And, and speaking of weeping, sometimes these conversations do lead to tears. Now, I know white tears are a very sensitive subject. That's kind of a pun. Not really. I'm learning that sometimes when white people are talking to white people and it leads to tears, you know, sometimes it's important to, to cry. Not to shut people down by saying, this isn't about your feelings as white people. Hey, if, if we're developing a conscience as, as white people, that's great. Realizing that we've been lied to by our parents and our education system and our churches, it's really painful. It's sad. It might even make people cry as part of the learning process. Listen. What are you hearing? As we listen to this story from Genesis 21, think about the new story we're trying to tell together. It's a long time coming. We're living in a time when people are collectively trying to create a new story and continue a story that has been suppressed and ignored for a long time. But it's there. And it's here. I hope that the story of the people who marched during the global pandemic and the story of the creative alternatives that some people are finally realizing are viable and possible, I hope that this is a story that will be told through the ages. I believe that together we can build monuments that our descendants will not need to topple. I don't believe in perfection, but I do believe in a story of good news that we can tell together. In this last section, we're going to talk about action. I do want to say that action can include celebration, and this is a holiday weekend. I don't just mean it's party time, but there's a major holiday we should all honor this weekend. June 19th is Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. 619. Okay, I'm going to read you a web address for a awesome toolkit from Surge Faith called Taking Action for Black Lives, and it ends in 619, spelled out, S-I-X-N-I-N-E-T-E-E-N. Okay, so the web address is bit.ly, 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 slash, surgefaith619. You're probably typing it into your web browser right now, bit.ly, slash, S-U-R-J-F-A-I-T-H-S-I-X, N-I-N-E-T-E-E-N. Surge Faith 619. It's an incredible toolkit. There's a lot there. But let me say in this action section three things from the movement for black lives that I want to center. Number one, defund the police. I believe in a world where we address harm by caring for each other, not perpetuating harm. Another way to say this an appropriate way to say this is we must defund the police. What's happening in your community around this? Educate yourself. Learn about it. Support the work being done. Join the campaign to defund the police. Secondly, invest 
in black community. This is the create the story we want to tell part of the action. You know, we remove that and we replace it with what? With investing in black community. Education, housing, safety. White people, what do we want in our white community? Black people want the same things in black community. The world needs to invest in black community. One last thing, you're going to like this one. Third, finally, you can call on Donald Trump to resign. Just ask. You know, who knows? I invite you to call on the President of the United States to leave office. Won't solve everything, but it will be good for all of us, including him. You know, my local paper, the the Portland Press Herald in Maine, made this request recently in an editorial. It's time for all of us to get on board. Call for the resignation of Donald Trump. So the toolkit is amazing. Check it out. Spend some time with the really good ideas there for taking action and then act. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me share. You can donate online on our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. Thanks for helping support this podcast, the larger work of organizing white people to show up for racial justice. Let's defund the police and invest in black community. Call for the resignation of Donald Trump. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Just search the word as resistance. Transcripts are available on our website. Our sound engineer is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max, for making this podcast possible. Next week on the word is resistance, you'll hear from Margaret as we continue to explore abolition and the Bible. Peace and power to you all. I'm grateful to be in this movement with you. Defund the police. Black Lives Matter. Happy Juneteenth.